Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Show. I'm Matt Brown, talking as always to Jeff Borman. Uh, this week, we are talking about the airlines, the unholy union of Frontier and Spirit. A few weeks ago, it got us thinking what if we had total power? Not just FAA chair or presidential power or regular old billionaire Elon Musk power, but total snap my fingers and make this happen kind of power over the current state of the airline industry. But first, some details on this deal, on this merger that just happened. It's not really a merger, it's a purchase. Uh, Frontier purchased Spirit for about $3 billion. Uh, it's now going to become the fifth largest airline in the country if it's approved. It's a big if, but probably going to happen. Uh, Frontier operates out of Denver. They've got about 100 U.S. destinations, about 31 international, about 3,000 employees. Spirit is maybe the more maligned of the two, even though I, I, it's a little bit of a horse race. Sometimes they're based in South Florida. They have uh, under 100 destinations uh, in the U.S. and abroad. They're notorious for being the first airline to charge passengers for carry-on bags. Uh, and like like a Seinfeld character, they have this almost comic strictness. They always seem to attract bad headlines because of that strictness. About ten years ago, you know, the, the airline has this super strict refund policy, and they announced that the airline would not issue a refund to this dying veteran, this Marine who had purchased a non-refundable ticket between Florida and Atlantic City, and he was like seventy six years old, and he's trying to get his one hundred ninety seven bucks back because he had cancer and his doctor told him not to fly and spirit came out and just said, no. <laughs> so, so it became this big brouhaha. And finally the spirit CEO had to get involved and say, I'm going to personally refund, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But yeah, spirit always seems to kind of make, make those crazy headlines. But anyway, this merger is happening. And uh, because of that, the stocks are up. And with COVID receding and you have all these you know, headlines coming out of the airlines, like Alaska Airlines doing this subscription plan, you know, that you have a lot of you know, rosy pictures of what's going to happen this year as far as rebounding. You know, you have a lot of uh, uh, interpretations of the in these news articles uh, that are something, you know, like, aha, see, the airlines are back, baby. They're back. Jeff, do you agree? No, not at all. Uh, I wouldn't look at it as their back at all. Most forecasts expect the world's air passenger volume to still be three years away from pre-pandemic levels. IATA, our good friends at IATA, they predict three and a half billion people will buckle up this year. Uh, that's double 2020. So does that feel great? Of course, but it's a billion shy of 2019. The two largest domestic markets, US and China, are about 80 and 85% respectively of pre-COVID levels. Uh, but international travel is at 40% of 2019 uh, due to a cacophony of conflicting and confusing regulations. And those things are starting to fall. Those barriers are falling, but they are very much still there. So this is not suddenly some rosy, uh, you know, rainbow-filled, whole new world for the airlines. No, I don't think so. Collectively, the industry globally lost $130 billion in 2020, $52 billion last year. And they're expected to lose just $12 billion this year. So, no, those rose-tinted you know, aviators, they're going to stay in their cases for a while. And the industry, I think, you know, and it is the headlines you still see a little bit of, the industry still faces huge losses, even though it's gotten this fire hose of government cash over the last two years. $54 billion is what the U.S. government gave American air carriers during the pandemic. So in addition to significantly suppressed demand, 
airlines globally owe an estimated $110 billion to governments worldwide for keeping them afloat with all these loans. Add that debt service obligation of $110 billion to fuel prices that have tripled over the last two years. And of course, you've got the unions who are eventually going to demand a wage increase. Airlines now routinely cancel 1,500, 2,500 flights at a time during peak travel. Last fall, we saw that almost every other weekend. Cockpit technology across the board is shockingly analog. Whenever you peek into a a cockpit when you're boarding a plane, it looks like it's from 1970 because it is. Airports, aside from a new LaGuardia terminal here or an upgraded concourse there, have become these kind of sterile holding cells. Delays are rampant. You know, there was a statistic, I think the Wall Street Journal had this uh, a few weeks ago, like JetBlue's on-time arrival percentage in 2021 was 69.9%. So roughly two-thirds are not making it on time. Air travel, and this has been for a while, this isn't like a a new thing. Air travel has taken on this faint air, maybe not so faint, (laughs) this palpable air of dread. And I think it's sometimes it's a miracle that we get the service that we do. And so... I come to you today, Jeff, as a genie, a wisecracking, sassy genie with three wishes in hand. I'm giving you three wishes. The only caveat here is they have to be airline industry specific. Sorry, can't, can't, you can't do these for personal gain. Or can you? Maybe improving the airline industry improves all of our lives. And go. Wish number one. What would you like to see? I guess my first wish here is that the Frontier Spirit merger is approved. And that the two airlines keep their scrappy underdog culture. Uh, what's exciting about the potential for the Frontier Spirit merger is that it could, is it could create some genuine competition that the big three really have to consider when bullying passengers around with prices and routes and dreaded fees. And I say big three because while Southwest is clearly in that group and it's often the big four, Southwest tends to zig when they zag. Pricing on Southwest is now comparable to the big three. So they're also, they're really not a low cost carrier any longer anyway, but they still carry that low cost carrier mentality at Southwest, that rogue mentality. At about 18% market share though, Southwest isn't big enough to move the marketplace. But as the merger of Frontier and Spirit to low cost carriers in their own right, uh, if those two come together to become the fifth largest airline, then along with Southwest, numbers two and five really might be big enough to challenge the entrenched and frankly unchallenged policies that the Delta United and American block at 50% of the marketplace are able to pull off. Yeah. And as much as we talk about you know free marketplace, American, American politics particularly loves to talk about how free the marketplace is. They're almost never really free, especially when the market starts dealing in the billions and trillions of dollars like uh, the airline industry. There are always lobbyists and special interests and rich people and union demands and vote-seeking politicians, et cetera, et cetera. And thus you get situations like the current state of domestic U.S. air travel. So when you talk about the big three, three and a half, Delta, American, United, Southwest, they essentially control domestic passenger travel in the U.S. with many implications. Yeah, it's hard not to laugh when the flight attendant says, we know you have a choice in airline. Having the big four, the big three and a half control all this means that they've cut, you know, across the board, they've cut smaller airports out of the picture dramatically. Um, 31% of non-hub routes got cut between 2007 and 2016. That control obviously goes towards fees, many, many fees. They can increase baggage fees to get prices 
Airlines collected $8.6 billion in baggage and change fees in 2019. That is six times the $1.4 billion they collected in 2007. Would you do away with those fees? Probably not, no. The issues consumers face is way bigger than that. We talked about this when we did our resort fee episode. If those go away, hotel prices just jump immediately to offset it. So it might be more convenient for customers and easier for operators to move uh, the collection of the cash from the rate instead of the rate plus the fee. It's probably better for consumers that way. But essentially, the out-of-wallet cost for flying would adjust very quickly. So no, I probably wouldn't focus on that. Uh, My hope is that a more competitive marketplace would compete on service. Overseas, there are very clear differences between the low-cost carriers like Ryanair and British Airways. A few years ago, I flew from London to Stockholm, and I flew on POP. I'd never heard of the airline before. It was out of an airport I had never heard of before. And it was like riding a Greyhound at 20,000 feet, but it was a third the price of the British Airways flight. And in the US, the service on the nicer airlines, you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, right? The nicer airline, the big three, uh, the difference in service between those and the low cost carriers is pretty negligible. Now, even if you're in first class in one of the nicer airlines, the product is only marginally better. You get a wider seat, maybe a bag of chips, but the service isn't any different. So in the US, passengers are really just kind of a bitchy type of cargo as far as the airlines are concerned. Would you add any fees? Maybe, yeah. Uh, I would consider introducing a premium on aisle seats. Uh, You get a little bit more leg room during a flight. You can get up without bothering people, access your overhead bin if that's what you want. I personally tend to like windows because I can lean up against it, especially on early morning flights, and I tend to take those. So try to grab a few more minutes of sleep on a flight, lean up against the wall. But I'm not a germaphobe, and especially coming out of a pandemic, those who are probably don't want to think too long about how not clean those windows probably are. Right. I, I think there's a demand factor, though, on the aisle seats. And I don't have access to this, but you know, if people prefer them as they're choosing the seat on the plane, my guess is that there's probably a preference that can be measured for people who choose those versus windows. Uh, and I'd probably stick a price tag on it. Okay. Well, so you've solved Frontier Spirit. Congratulations. What would you do with wish number two? Yeah, at some point, airlines are going to have to push the two manufacturers of airplanes, Boeing and Airbus, to build products that recognize that the size of humans has changed. Uh, This isn't a manufacturer problem. They'll build what the buyer wants, but the airlines are going to have to have a seismic shift in the way they view passenger comfort. This really does require a genie. Two weeks ago, Matt, I don't know if you saw this. Guinness Book of World Records had a new entry for updating the world's tallest teenager reached a record seven and a half feet. The economics on this are too easy, though, for airlines, right? Airlines measure in RPKs, revenue per kilometer. Flying a plane with eight people or 80 people pretty much costs the same thing. You still got to have a couple pilots. Fuel's about the same. Airport fees are the same. There's a very simple, easy to understand incentive to cram as many people as you can, like sardines into that can. So hubris won't let us think of ourselves this way. But again, I go back to as far as airlines are concerned, we're really just cargo. But to my wish, uh, humans are larger than ever. And I don't mean that just on the obesity issue, although that's very real also. I just mean that even the average size person is 5% taller than a century ago, three and a half inches taller than the average male in World War II era, right? And this is a result of better health and nutrition, not just bad health practice by the individual. So every other consumer product in our lives has gotten larger. 
a lady size 12 in 1990 is now a lady size six, even though they're the same measurement, right? Uh, but if you board a plane, your large ass is just going to have to cram into that old, that old size seat. And I think mm -hmm. I'd waste my second wish on that one. Doesn't it feel like everything we buy is getting larger, except the things we want the most? It sounds like a, <laughs> it sounds like a country song lyric from the seventies, yeah. but it's like, you know, it's like big gulp, like, like portion sizes are bigger. All these man mansions are bigger, but it's like things that are sort of live in the public sphere. Like, oh, I want to, you know, like a, like a larger office or I'd like a larger plane seat or I'd like, I'd like something in those third spaces around me that would make my life more comfortable. It feels like those things just shrink and shrink and shrink. Spirit Airlines is known for the big front seat. That's another reason uh, to hope they can make a difference with more scale in the marketplace. Right? If taxpayers are going to directly subsidize airlines, can we get just a little something in the way of improved comfort? Can you imagine if we only had five hotel chains that dominated U.S. lodging? No boutiques, no independence, no small change, just the big five. It would be horrible. Room quality would go down. Fees would inch up. There'd be this endless upgrade ladder uh, like we have with flights where, you know, everything is an extra $10, $20, $50. And think about what that protectionism has done in the airlines case by artificially keeping ticket prices in this quote unquote acceptable range and not allowing them to balloon. It placates consumers who might otherwise support, you know, long-term transit solution. If your ticket to Chicago from New York is six or $700 and it's full of hassle and it's full of wait times and delays and ludicrous upgrades, you'd be more prone to think about something like a high-speed train that costs less and would get you there in relatively the same time. You know, there's a train connecting Beijing and Shanghai uh, in, in four hours. And it's a bullet train and it's a little more expensive, certainly. And it's a showpiece that the country kind of puts out there to the world. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily embrace Chinese patterns of, of uh, building because that can be problematic as far as labor goes. But they built this thing that can essentially get you the same distance. I can, I can travel from New York to Chicago in four hours. And what if I could do that for a cost that is more reasonable than what an airline cost would be? That's not apples to apples, certainly, um, partially because it would take America 100 years and $80 trillion to, to do something like that. I'm looking at you, Second Avenue Subway in New York City. But the bottom line is discomfort is kind of the matchstick for change. And that if the airlines were kind of, if we took off some of these artificial protections for the airlines, I think the consumer experience would change and we would, our, our expectations would change of how we want to travel. Anyway. Wish three, Jeff. What do you want? I think you're on the track to genuine competition. Normally, since we're talking about a CEO, a CEO's role is pretty straightforward. Deliver returns to investors. Airlines twist that because we're not sure. Are they a public transportation, like a utility, uh, while they're also being publicly traded? So I guess in some cases, I would do exactly what CEOs have done. Right? You take as much cash as possible from the government when times are bad, and you pocket the cash when times are good. And you go back to the origins of commercial flight in the U.S., uh, and it was Pan Am's deal with Congress to carry mail to far-flung, oddball destinations around Latin America that subsidized the first commercial airline. There was a fun docuseries on that, by the way. Uh, the story of Pan Am on PBS was called Across the Pacific, but it talks in depth about how Juan Trippe greased enough palms in Washington, D.C. to get these mail routes, and that launched the first airline. Things aren't so different. 
Uh, I mean, and I'm not, not suggesting that uh, there's foul play now. I think, you know, if you go back to the origins of Pan Am, that probably wouldn't be allowed today the way they went about it. I'm not suggesting that, you know, airlines are playing above board. The question is, uh, what is the game that they have to play? So you've got the protectionism that comes in a few forms, right? And most people, I think, are aware that the U.S. government basically underwrites airline stocks by guaranteeing that the companies cannot fail through taxpayer funding. And that's a pretty sweet deal to be CEO of a company that pays you in shares while ensuring the shares never fall below zero. And then the government, though, for all its trust-busting bluster, uh, continues to approve mergers of airlines to basically the triopoly that we have today. And the government says it cares about consumer protection, has ensured that consumer choice has all been but eliminated. Then, though, the U.S. government harms consumers further by making sure that they don't allow foreign competitors into our marketplace. And this is why Emirates can't run uh, um, like a Miami to New York route. Foreign airlines cannot fly passengers between domestic locations strictly. And that's that's something that I don't think a lot of people actually knew. No, right. Like some lobbyists have somehow convinced legislators that Emirates is not a security risk when it flies into New York City from Abu Dhabi, but it's a grave danger flying to New York City from Miami. Right? That's kind of how they've presented it publicly. But I think the truth of the matter is we know that Emirates is not a security risk, no matter where the O&D combo is. There's actually a term for this, and it's cabotage. The cabotage law, I can't, I can't say that without thinking the Beastie Boys. It's cabotage. The cabotage law also says that foreign companies- I had to tell you y'all, it's cabotage. <laughs> the cabotage law also says that foreign companies can't own more than 25% stock for a U.S. airline. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, so my, my third wish would be for the U.S. to stop harming its own consumers with outdated protectionist policies that please airline unions and the carriers that taxpayers underwrite. If Cathay or Singapore Air were able to compete for New York to L.A. routes, what would happen? Price competition would be more robust. Service standards would be far better. Investment in the airplanes themselves would speed up. Consumers would benefit. And consumers don't have lobbyists, though. Unions sure do, and they don't want competition for those jobs on our domestic planes. And so it would be tough if the U.S. allowed foreign carriers to run domestic routes. Uh, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to pull off. We would rightly insist on reciprocity in their markets. Uh, the EU could never pull off that kind of reciprocity. We still ban French cheese and Argentine beef on the absurd idea that it's unhealthy for American people. Uh, but open skies and free competition, it works in other places, so it can be done. In South America, Lawn is Chilean, and it flies routes all over the continent. Avianca is a Colombian airline owned by a Brazilian and does intra-Colombian routes. Uh, so it can work if the politicos get out of the way. An odd side ben benefit could be a wave of real mergers, though. If we allowed foreign carriers to compete for domestic routes, instead of the feeble partnerships that we see today, like One World and Star Alliance, uh, what you'd probably see is a truly integrated set of companies operating globally. Uh, that could get extra efficiency into the system that would make price competition uh, potentially more profitable, not just driving profits down through that competition. I'm just thinking how nice it would be to take a British Airways flight to Seattle. But then also conversely, what the Brits would think if like Southwest was running flights for, from London to Manchester. I don't know. I don't know what they think about that necessarily. Have you ever flown JAL? I've never flown JAL. 
Americans should all have at least one opportunity in their lives to fly JAL. We would, you could never support, like after one good experience on JAL, I think we would absolutely ditch this like foreign protectionist policy. You'd have to. All right, Wait, can I have why? A oh, okay, why? Uh, service standards are, have you, it's okay, how's this? It's the only time in my life I got off a plane and said, I'd go back to that restaurant. I remember my uh, my wife took uh, British Airways. This is like years ago now, five or six years ago. And she called me from the airport when uh, she got in. And I was like, ah, how was the flight? She got, she got upgraded business class in British Airways. And she was like, this is the best, one of the best days of my life. <laughs> and I was like, one of the best days of your travel life? No, no, one of the best days of my life. <laughs> this yeah. was amazing. <laughs> And you know, Emirates is a similar, uh, I haven't personally flown Emirates very often, but Emirates and Etihad, they both have the most loyal following because they, they give experiences like this. Most Americans do not know that flying can be that good. Jeff, these are great wishes. Congratulations. Can I have you can. I, you know, first I want to say what I like about these wishes is that uh, you know, unlike an episode of like Tales from the Crypt, you didn't wish for something that went horribly wrong and curse everybody. At least I don't think. Though it would be ironic if one of these things is actually horrible and cursed. Wait us. for my wait for my fourth then. <laughs> my fourth wish. Can we put in the passenger bill of rights some verbiage that forbids hawking credit card offers once the doors close? The pilot and crew announcements are barely audible throughout the entire flight, and then all of a sudden, as soon as we're ready for our final descent, here comes the loudest death awakening i hate the thing i hate it can we get rid of it no more credit card offers in the plane uh, well what if they give you great percentage points and all kinds of benefits isn't that worth it to get an american airlines credit card <laughs> you know the pitch matt is only exclusive to this flight <laughs> sure <laughs> of course Sixty thousand miles are only available to you right now <laughs> Uh, I have an, I have an addition. If I, if I, as Jeannie, if I were to throw something in here, talk about really impossible, I would throw in, um, having random flights. I don't know how you de determine this without making a lot of people angry, but I would, I would have random shuffling of the boarding zones and I get it first class, blah, blah, blah. They get to board, but everybody else, all the zones we are boarding tonight, we are boarding zone six. You are first, baby. You made it. I would love to see that. But at, we'll talk about a mathematical impossibility. That is just never going to happen. Yeah, I love that Southwest has at least embraced the concept of fluid mechanics. They fill from the window to the middle to the aisle. That is good. Yeah. Or at least at least kind of mix it up. Like, I think there's room for a brand like JetBlue or something. JetBlue is now mature enough where it won't do this anymore. But it's like, okay. If you, if somebody in your section comes up and you tell us a great joke, you're, we think that joke is the funniest joke of all these jokes. That means your sectional board first. I'd love to see that. That'd be great. I think you would probably have a lot of angry people though. Yeah, Southwest has built a culture on doing things like that, where the airline crew, uh, you know, they'll do their pre-flight boarding announcements and they'll, they'll mock up a flash mob or something crazy, but just something to make the flying experience a little better. They're the only airline I know of that actually embraces doing goofy things like that to break up the monotony of you know, all the security and the boarding and the loading and unloading. This week, as every week, I have a question of the week. Jeff, you've not heard this. This one's pretty straightforward. What is the best airline logo? And it can be past or present. Does not have to be a current airline. 
some of the classics are great. The airlines that don't exist anymore. We mentioned Pan Am. It, I don't even know if the logo is so particularly good so much as that just seeing that Pan Am logo fills me with like that sense of adventure that I had as a child, right? It was that the world is so big and I got to go see it. And Pan Am, it wasn't flying friendly skies or we got you there on time or how much your baggage fee was. Pan Am was about being like the Robinson Crusoe of your time. You know, I think sometimes this way about in a way that Sidney Pollock used to talk about movies and how movies change in the seventies that, you know, up until 60s and 70s, the movies were were very, um, what came out of Hollywood was very aspirational. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. we are going out, we're going to have adventures, and it's big, it's big stories. You're in Lisbon, and you're trying to get out, and your ex-lover runs a, uh, runs a bar, and you have to, you know, it's these just huge <laughs> stories. And then the the stories became smaller, and that's not necessarily such a bad thing, but it, the 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 way that the logos kind of reflect that, you know, like TWA, same thing. It's like, oh, it represents motion, the world and uplift. Whereas the logos now, I think, represent personal experience and personal comfort, which is ironic because most of what we've been talking about today is how personal comfort has been depreciated. One of my other favorites, because it makes me laugh every time, is uh, speaking of, uh, well, I guess it's not Frontier, uh, Alaska Airlines. So on the tail, you see that image of that, that man he is an unnamed, and they spent too much time in court over this. And it reminds me of the story a guy who used to work for Alaska Airlines told me that apparently there is an Alaskan man who looks just like that guy. And he sued the ever-loving hell out of them for using his image. And it really went kind of way up into a long, drawn-out court battle because they looked so much alike uh, that Alaska really had to stick to and prove, no, it's just a fictitious person. It has no... Uh, reason, even if the likeness is there, there's no real connection to any single human being. And no, you cannot sue us for anything. Uh, but every time I see that dude's <laughs> image on the back of a plane, I think of that lawsuit and what it must be like for that guy, you know, every time he sees a plane with his face on it. Also, if you go back historically, I don't think this it, this um, airline is around anymore. I was kind of looking this up this week as I was trying to figure out what I was going to ask you. And there's an awesome logo for Nigeria Airways. It's <laughs> green and white. And it is this flying green elephant in the middle of it. And it's awesome. And I love it. And I, I love the, the idea of, of that kind of whimsy, you know, you're taking this, you know, this kind of iconic animal uh, in Nigeria and you're adding it to this logo. And I, I just, I thought it was, it was really cool. So if, if you get a chance out there to, to kind of do a little deep dive search, check out Nigeria Airways on, uh, on Wikipedia. Uh, we will. We should probably spin out airline logos into its own full episode at some point. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and uh, as always, it's been great talking to you, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. <laughs>